0: Welcome to episode 46 of Stageworthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Stageworthy is a podcast about people in Canadian theatre featuring conversations with actors, directors, playwrights, stage managers, producers, and more. If you'd like to be a guest on Stageworthy or just want to drop me a line, you can find Stageworthy on Facebook and Twitter at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website at stageworthypodcast.com. If you enjoy the podcast, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or Google Music or whatever podcast app you use, and consider leaving a comment or rating. Johnny Sun is an MIT PhD candidate, the man behind the hilarious at Johnny Sun Twitter account, and a playwright whose work has been performed in both Canada and the U.S. His play, Dead End, is now playing at the Factory Theater, produced by Theater Lab. I was I was doing a little bit of a, a little bit of, of of research about you and just sort of looking you up and I noticed that you are you are at MIT right now?
1: Yes, correct.
0: And your uh okay, your volume's a little a little bit low on the microphone side. Can you give me a little more volume there?
1: Uh yeah, let me just get closer. Is that better?
0: That's much better. Okay, great. Thank you. Um so I mean, I know I talk to a lot of people who are I refer to them as slashes. They're an actor slash uh, staged uh, combat person. They're an actor slash director, an actor right. slash designer, or a playwright slash whatever. Uh, I think you're the first uh, playwright slash PhD candidate that I've spoken to. Cool. Um, and it's interesting to me because your your major and the things that you've studied in your Uh, academic world are don't seem related to theater to me.
1: Mm -hmm. Do you see them as related? Um, I, I, I mean, I do. I think, um, I think I see theater as like a way and like, I see theater and academics and kind of all the stuff that I've been interested in as a way to um, explore certain ideas. So I don't really see them as separate things, but really just like different mediums or different, different tools that, um, can be used to explore certain things. So like the stuff that I explore in the play, um, a lot of it has to do with, um, the idea of confined space and being, being present in a space with other people. And I think that kind of relates to, um, the ideas that I am interested in architecture, for example.
0: Hmm. Well, just to, just since you, you've brought up the, the, the play, uh, dead end, um, which is opening in October in uh, just, I mean, just a little while Mm -hmm. uh, at the factory. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about, about what Dead End is about? Sure. Um, Dead End is a
1: one act play. It's set, it's set during the zombie apocalypse. It's about two survivors who get trapped in a hallway um, where a zombie is blocking the escape or the, the open side of the hallway. Mm. Um, so really it's kind of like, it's in the tradition of those kind of like bottle episodes um, or like those, those plays that are, are limited to two characters or in this case, three characters in, in a setting where mm. they're kind of trapped. Um, so I've like, I read, i when, when I wrote this play originally, I was reading um, things like Pinter's, the Dumb Waiter or like Starter's No Exit. Um, and I guess Waiting for Godot is a, a classic example of, of that kind of idea. Um, but that's the format. And it really is uh, this way, this setup to, that allowed me to explore um, conversation and allowed me to explore how people process um, things like death and mortality or things like uh, The Other or, um, yeah, or ideas like that.
0: Well that's, I mean it's interesting that you bring up the 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 topic of of the other um when in as as we're recording this there's you know the US election mm-hmm. which seems to be uh, uh very much hinged on at least on one side about about conversations about the other mm-hmm. um and so that's that's definitely uh, an issue uh have you I mean zombies can stand in for all kinds of different uh They can symbolize different things. Mm -hmm. Um, For you, in the context of this play, what does the zombie symbolize, if anything?
1: Um, It definitely symbolizes, I think, this idea of something that looks human, but is ascribed like non-human properties. Um, And so I think there's a lot of play, and it's something I think that's been explored as part of like the broad genre of of zombie fiction i guess um about like just questioning if this thing is human or this is a non-human thing that has human um has a human appearance uh so it, it definitely represents that kind of idea and the exploration of well if it's not human is it still worth is its life still worth something or if it is human then how do we see past the non-human aspects to get to the human aspects? And I think like Mm. a lot of those types of ideas are, um, are related uh, like metaphorically to, to race and the way that, especially in the U S and I think that's why, that's probably why the theater lab felt a connection um, to this piece enough that they're producing it is because I think some of those conversations um, parallel what's happening in, in U S and in the U S and in American politics right now. Mm.
0: Mm. In, in terms of, in terms of, uh, the way that, the way that you are looking at that, um, uh, there's, I mean, there's all kinds of, uh, all of this stuff that's happening in the U S and you know what? uh, Canadians get to be smug, but we don't get to excuse ourselves. Yeah. Um, because we have our own race problems here, Absolutely. Uh, regardless of what we like to think about ourselves. So uh, the, these are universal things. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I, as somebody who, who is, um, in, you know, who who is Asian writing about these topics, Mm -hmm. Um, do you, do you find there's a, a different way that you're looking at it than somebody who was, uh, 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 Caucasian or black might be, might be looking at it. And that might sound like, that might be kind of a stupid question, but I'm always curious about the way that other people approach things.
1: Yeah, absolutely. No, that's not a stupid question at all. I think, um, and like, this is kind of interesting because it's not like my, I think identity as an Asian Canadian hasn't, been something that i've really um explored i think as i was growing up because i think i was fortunate enough to live in such a diverse community like i grew up in toronto and i lived and my high school was incredibly diverse and like i think i lived in kind of the the quote racial utopia unquote that toronto Mm -hmm. tries to like present itself as um so i didn't really have to grapple with kind of my identity as an Asian Canadian until really I moved to the U S and that's when I think I started um, becoming a, more aware of race and especially the way that Americans talk about race, I think is very different to the way Canadians talk about it. Mm. Um, but looking back I, and in retrospect, I think a lot of my work does relate to um, the fact that growing up, I think Asian I think growing up as an Asian Canadian um, there's, there always is a sense of being an other and of being someone who is kind of given membership, but doesn't, doesn't truly belong. Um, And I think that's, I think that happens on both sides. I think that happens as like from my personal side, I think I've always felt like a a little bit of a distance. Um, And I think, Also, in a lot of spaces that I've tried to occupy, like in architecture, in design, in um, in theater, and in comedy, there isn't a lot of Asian representation, and it's primarily um, a space dominated by um, either white-dominated or African American-dominated. But I think, regardless of the other races, there really isn't, there hasn't been space carved out for um, Asian Americans. And so I think whenever I've kind of been in a space like going to Second City or doing sketch comedy or anything, I've usually always felt like the only Asian in the room. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that, I think that has contributed to the way that I perceive um, myself and kind of my place in the world, which comes out, uh, I think in different ways than, uh, than our traditional.
0: Hmm. Well, it's interesting because you were saying about, you know, when you go to Second City and you felt like uh, the only Asian in the room. I mean, were you? Um, For the most part? I mean, I think so. I mean, it's yeah.
1: yeah, But the other thing is like it's it's also like that's also strange, right? Because I think, again, going in being in Toronto, um, I would definitely say I was always the only Asian male in the room and i think mm-hmm. that's also an important distinction um yeah because i i definitely had a f- there were a few classmates of mine who were asian women um, okay yeah but i think like the the asian male the representation of asian males i think is the really, um i think complicated in western mm-hmm. culture
0: yeah i think so
1: and i think it's um definitely been kind of stigmatized and there's a lot of I think stuff ingrained in society and the way that people um, perceive Asian males, that, that, that definitely, I think increases that distance.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I think, I think it goes, I mean, I, that I, uh, from what I understand, I've talked to a couple of people in the past about, about the company Fujen uh-huh. in, in Toronto, which, which prim- primarily concentrates on, on creating uh, work uh, featuring and, and by uh, Asian Canadians and uh, we're instrumental in 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 uh at least uh, the people surrounding that I think were part of the genesis of of Kim's convenience, the fringe hip yeah. paper hip all of that and now soon now t v show mm-hmm. um which are very unique in that they're putting uh Asians on the stage and now on television right. that's something that we haven't seen, especially in the context of leading characters
1: Mm-hmm yeah absolutely i think like well i was actually going to bring up kim's convenience because i i love like the fringe um the fringe festival in toronto and like the fringe mm. community and when i saw kim's convenience like my world changed i mm. think because it was the first like i remember walking out of that show just like bawling um because like just cr- like just crying like a mess because it was the first time that I saw something resembling like my life and my experiences on stage and really given the focus and studied with, um with nuance. And I think in Troy did a really was, was just a huge inspiration. Um, mm-hmm. So definitely. I mean, that... I think,
0: I think a lot of people walked out of the theater, especially at that fringe festival. Cause I saw it there um, uh-huh. crying just for different reasons. I mean, the script is really good, but you know, yeah. I, I, I left weeping and I will say that, You know, one of the cliches that that I see in theater, and I've worked in large theaters Uh uh, just uh, as an usher and watching audiences, um, the standing ovation no longer has any meaning. Uh But at that performance that I was at, that standing ovation had meaning because it it was spontaneous. Nobody thought about it. It wasn't, oh, this is the point where we stand up. Everybody was on their feet because it deserved it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, When did you start – I mean, there's, there's so many facets of, uh, that I, I kind of am fascinated by about your story in that you are, um, academic, mm-hmm. you are an academic, you, uh, are a playwright. Uh, you have a massive Twitter following, mm-hmm. um, in terms of, in terms of just the theater aspect, um, when did you start writing for theater? I, so I like, I mean I was I was a drama
1: kid in high school and I think that's kind of the fun the fun part of it because I was also like the science and math kid but my real like the way I really I think identified in high school was as the as the drama kid as a the theater kid among all the other theater kids and that's what made like that's what got me through high school and that kind of is how I defined myself and how I became a person was through um, theater and through drama in school and I was like in the main stage musical in grade 12 and that was a hugely like formative year for me um, and so I've always kind of seen myself more as like a drama kid or as an arts kid who has somehow infiltrated the academic world as opposed to the other way around as opposed yeah, to the way I think that, yeah. that my resume kind of presents me as um, mm. so I mean like I think I think it's I, it's kind of hard to answer that question because I think it's so ingrained in how I see myself. Like when I went to engineering school for my bachelor's um, at U of T, I was in the engineering science program. Um, I kind of saw that. I mean, I definitely saw that as okay, I'm going to do this engineering thing on the side while I try to find a way to do theater as well. Mm. And so while mm. I was in school, I, um, I found the sketch, I, I like became part of this sketch comedy group. Um, that was done by U of T engineering called school night um, which is just this massive production that happens every year at hard house theater and through that I got involved in improv comedy and kind of the sketch comedy community in Toronto um, so I think I've always been a theater person I started right re- like this play was actually the first draft I wrote it when I was 19 um, mm. when I was I kind of wrote it in between classes and like late at night after i finished my problems, that's because i felt like it was just something that i it was a part of who i was to kind of and it was the only way i could like continue to feel connected to theater while i was busy being overwhelmed by engineering so mm. like that was kind of like i was compelled to write that because i felt like that was my way to like stay connected um even yeah. if it was just in my head
0: it's it's interesting that you say that because I know I know lots of people who I know a few people who are playwrights and so the writing we we also have like day jobs mm-hmm. and so the way that we survive our day job is by every time that every chance we get the opportunity we write absolutely and it sounds like you were doing the same thing during school but probably with a heavier workload than those of <laughs> us who are just working the day job
1: R- right maybe um, I do think that I do think that like that amount of pressure sometimes unless it like breaks you i think that Mm. pressure is productive in some ways because it just it gives you like a reason to write like it gives you that that motivation to have that creative um release or it gives you that creative energy that you can draw from
0: yeah it's almost like that kind of pressure if you didn't write that's what would break you but the the writing gives you the outlet
1: exactly it gives you that strength to like you to keep going for sure
0: were you doing any? Were you doing theater before high school, or, or was high school where you found uh, the theater?
1: High school was where I found it. I, um, it's kind of like my parents actually tried to get like I used to. So when I was like really young, when I was a kid, I did um, jazz dance, um, and Ooh. that's that was kind of the closest I think it got to performance. But really, like my decision to do theater was. I was, I was such a shy kid and I was such like, I had, I was so afraid of like public speaking and, but I always watched, like I watched every movie. I loved watching um, TV and film. And I loved like, I think I loved the entertainment industry and I was obsessed Mm -hmm. with kind of Hollywood and TV and um, like, and indie film and film festivals and stuff. And I just thought like I had to, I had to get into this somehow. And I think starting to do drama in grade nine was like my way of, of, it was kind of like, I remember like signing up for class. I remember signing up for like my first drama class in grade nine being like, this is terrifying. I'm way out of my element. Everyone's going to laugh at me. Um, but like, but that but that's kind of how everyone felt when they joined drama mm-hmm. in grade nine. Right. And then you find your community and then you, you grow with those people. So
0: that's right. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's it, it's interesting that you're talking about being being a shy person. When I know so many people in theater, and I've spoken to so many who mm-hmm. are introverts mm-hmm. by nature, but everybody thinks that an actor is going to be this extrovert that's yeah. like out there. But so many uh, of us are the opposite, and right. and and not not extroverts. Absolutely. Did you find that? I mean, I'm sure that you've noticed that as well, and 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 it sounds like like you're the same way. Uh-huh. Did uh, and did your parents encourage the the journey into theater? Um, yeah, it was always like they
1: were they're they're kind of um like funny to me because they, I think, were both the most apprehensive. About the arts, but also the most like encouraging and the most like when, whenever me and my brother did anything, I think arts related or theater related, they were the ones who like, who loved that the most. So mm-hmm. um, I think it was a bit of both. I mean, um, they were, they immigrated to Canada. And so I think, and this is something that I'm also just starting to really come to terms with um and to really, like, and to really understand them, but I think the immigrant experience is kind of um, this feeling of like we we came here to create a better life for our kids and for our family, and when when you do that, you you try to guarantee that success as much as possible, mm-hmm. and so you I think, and this is I think common to any children of immigrants, regardless of like where they've immigrated from but like that that feeling of like our kids we want our kids to be successful and to to like kind of reap the the benefits that we made sacrifices for Mm
0: -hmm.
1: um and i think that attitude has definitely lends itself to like going towards more traditional um fields where you would expect to find success and i think arts has never the arts have never really been on the radar for most um immigrant families, I'd say. So I think that was that was where the apprehension was. It was like, well, if you if you follow this direction, like how are you gonna make money or like how are you gonna like we we don't have a roadmap for this. Um yeah, it's true. Yeah. And I mean that's that's just true of the arts in general, right? It's a lot yeah. it's a lot more um there's a lot more of a hustle I'd say. Mm-hmm. Um but but yeah I mean there was that attitude but at the same time they were when they were when they were in china they were like they were also performers like they they sang they did um they were like they were involved in the arts and stuff Mm -hmm. and so they i think they always had that passion as well so seeing i think and that's definitely where my brother and i both got our um artistic sides from Mm -hmm um so i think them seeing that come out too was also very exciting and so like it was this strange dynamic where like we were told kind of to avoid doing theater and the arts but every time we did it they would love it and they'd come to see all our shows and they'd be quoting lines like my dad still quotes lines from like a show i was in in 2009 Uh, (laughs) and like my mom reads all my tweets so it's it's like kind of mixed messages but it's also very encouraging when that when that happens
0: can I, can i ask you a question about about the the decision to uh pursue the the path through academia that you have rather than f- trying to pursue a theater a theatrical or th- more theater focused life maybe you don't see the two as as as, as separate <laughs> as they they are in my mind but your 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 resume and all of the the media about you does focus more on the on your schooling, your academic life yeah. and the Twitter account rather than, uh, the theater life. So I, I, I want to, I just, I'm curious about, uh, what drove you more towards academia?
1: Sure. Yeah. There are, um, I think there are a lot of reasons. I think mainly like I've, when I, I, I think when I was in, like when I was trying to figure out what I was going to do for my undergrad, um, it was actually kind of like a decision between like, Oh, should I apply to theater school? um, or should I do engineering? Um, and a lot of, actually, like a lot of mentors that I had that were kind of working artists or people or like my drama teachers and stuff. Um, I think the impression that I got was like, in order to really succeed in the arts, you need experience, right? Like you need mm-hmm. stuff to draw from. You need to have lived a life. And that kind of left the impression to me that... Um, your like a career in the arts can you can start that when you're eighteen or you can start that when you're like sixty five mm-hmm. um, and there was no set timeline whereas and I did want to do like i wanted to explore um academia, but I wanted to like do engineering and then I wanted to do architecture um but with those things, because I think those are more institutionalized and they come with like the degrees and the systems um that felt like stuff that you kind of had to do earlier Mm -hmm. so in a a sense like that those timelines kind of dictated um my choices more than anything i'd say like i i would not feel comfortable going to do a master's when i was 35 um for like i wanted to kind of get those checkpoints out of the way um and kind of free up the rest of my life to be able to to do the stuff that that i could do and hopefully my experience that i gained from being in school and doing this stuff um, would actually help and not detract from my ability to produce um, as an artistic creator.
0: What What have you learned uh, in your academic life that uh, you can you feel like you can directly apply to the arts life?
1: That's a good question. Um, a lot of it is. Like there's two, there's two things. One is like the actual content, but the other thing I think is kind of the meta side, like which it's, it's process and it's, um, discipline I think is the most direct answer because I don't, I went through two really hard programs like engineering science and then architecture school are both notoriously like, um, destructive I think to, 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 to the lives of their students. Um, But I think that I think I've kind of like learned a work ethic um, and kind of like almost like a relentlessness to um, to produce that I think has been really helpful in in letting me um, in letting me write and in letting me create stuff um, on like a schedule. And then the other thing is, I think content wise, um, I think I've been able to like carve my own spaces within like within school and so in engineering i was most interested in human behavior so i was looking at um simulation and like how simulation systems were designed and how human behavior was um kind of ascribed to to like computer systems um which i think in a way lets you see what part like how engineers describe humans and then you can be like well that's wrong um that's that's not that doesn't get anywhere close to what how people actually behave and but like by by being able to see how people look at how humans behave or how humans think um i think like just seeing that from all these different angles really helps give you context and give you perspective on what what's missing and what's important and what 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 things you can write in a play that you can't like do in a computer program, right? Hmm.
0: Hmm. It's uh, another thing that you know, you know, uh, that that it, it sounds like you, you you may have learned uh is because you were in these two notoriously difficult programs, programs that break people. Mm-hmm. You kind of learned what you can take. Yeah. You kind of learned how much you can put yourself through. Yeah, absolutely. Which is something that we don't often get to get to learn early in life. <laughs>
1: yeah I guess you're right um yeah it's uh it definitely it definitely puts you through a lot and I think that it teaches i think the the best thing is it teaches you how to fail and like that's like that's a mantra that comes up i think in a lot of arts like in improv that's that's the biggest mantra is you just have to learn how to fail and you have to go up there and fail um and definitely in school it also i think if you can get through it. I think the only way you can get through it with a healthy mindset and to come out the other side having grown is to accept the fact that you're not going to be able to do everything that you, you wanted to do and you're not going to be able to do it as, as well as you thought you would be able to. Um, And that mentality of, of, of like i failed my first, I think I failed like all my first midterms in my first year in engineering school. Um, And you kind of have to just learn to accept that and let it go and move on really fast um, in order to I think in order to survive
0: that's a really valuable lesson because I mean that's something that you may learn in an improv class or in improv classes but I know in theater school uh, failure was the last thing anybody wanted to do Uh you were so worried about failure that it was almost uh, for some people it may have been even crippling I know I had had this intense fear of failing when I was in theater school Uh and the having the freedom to to know that it's part of the process i think is something that uh would have been healthy and 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 better to learn early on and 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 you've you you learned that through not even not doing theater right,
1: <laughs> right. well like what what happened what happened in theater school when you if when you failed
0: oh uh usually it, if you always felt in in theater school that if you failed um that like failure was like the worst thing you could do. If you if you failed the the scene or if you failed the whatever the the project was, that this was another strike against you. And in theater in the theater school, uh, they often they, like they start with a big class, and the idea is to whittle you down. So they're always looking for reasons to uh, uh, ask people to leave the program.
1: Oh wow!
0: And so you always felt like if you failed, that was going to be a thing that they used. In order to remove you from the program, right, so the stakes were always really, really high that way, instead of it being something that was uh, encouraged and to think that you would learn from the failure
1: mm-hmm. oh wow,
0: which is so healthy and so important because you know what once we 're out in the in the theater world, uh, we are going to fail right many times we are going to fail to get a role that at an audition we 're going to be. In a play that doesn't work, we're going to get right. terrible reviews, and how you learn to deal with those things is super important.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And in the real world, like, there's no, there's no like upper, like, there's no, no upper system telling you what's right and what's wrong. Like, there's no system to subscribe abs- to. Whereas in school, I think, and that like in any school, there's always like a def- a definite reason why you failed or definitely reason reason why you succeed, and that just doesn't yeah. exist outside of that. It's true.
0: When, when did you start uh, this, this Twitter account of yours? Um, 2012. And from the beginning, was it what it became? Was it a comedy or did you start with with, like most people do? This is my lunch. Uh, (laughs) Here's what it did today. That sort of thing. Or did you have a clear vision from the beginning?
1: Uh, I definitely did not have a clear vision. I actually, so like (laughs) the, so it's funny because I think when people ask, when did the Twitter account start? I automatically think, like, when did, like, this version of, like, the Jomny Sun and, like, the weird comedy stuff start. Um, but, like, I had, I think I had my Twitter account since, like, Twitter started. Like, I, I think I had it in 2007 or something. And mm-hmm. so for, like, from then up to 2012, I was just using it the way everyone else was. Like, I was, I was tweeting, like, just saw a movie. Yeah. Um, like, my first tweet, I think, was, like, I just looked up Japanese money on Google and it looks really cool um but it was just like it was just normal stuff and i think as i got into comedy more i started trying to use twitter as a place to write jokes but Mm -hmm. it was still like it wasn't clicking like i think for a while for a few years i was trying to like use hashtags um to like i would i would literally write a pun and then go hashtag pun and then tweet it (laughs) (laughs) it just didn't it didn't work at all yeah yeah um and But I think around 2011, 2012, that's when, like, on Twitter, there's, like, a community that it people have called it Weird Twitter and people within Weird Twi- Twitter hate being called Weird Twitter. But I'm okay. just going to use that term because there's no other way to describe it. Um, but around 2011, I think there started to get, like, there started to a small kind of group of comedians or writers or poets or just random people just started tweeting, like totally absurd humor and totally absurd tweets that like they blew my mind because it was just I, i'd i never seen um comedy like that before and it was so perfect for i think the way twitter was structured um because like the strangeness of those tweets so perfectly subverted what everyone else was doing on twitter which was just like tweeting about their real lives um so when you have like I don't when you just have like the absurd situations that come up um from those accounts show up like on your feed between just had a sandwich and like just saw a movie um it was just something special and I was like this this is it like this is I want to get into this I want to play with this and so that was around 2012 when I like when I just was like I need I want to I have to I have to be part of this I have to start doing this and in doing that, I had to change like the whole style and uh, choose like a character and stuff.
0: So in terms of, in terms of the, the the quote unquote character uh, is as the Twitter page says uh, and misspelled Mm -hmm. uh, an alien confused about human language. I'm not even going to try to pronounce it the way it's spelled. Oh yeah, no, please don't. (laughs) I will. I think I will break myself if I try to Uh do that. But um, did you make any rules for yourself about the way that language would work for this character or what was the idea behind the character, the alien confused about human language?
1: Yeah. um, I think like, well, that, that description hasn't changed since 2012. And I think I chose it specifically because I didn't want it to be like alien confused about the English language. Um, Human language to me actually just meant like figuring out how humans Work so it was more about like alien discovering emotion or aliens dis- right. discovering like behavior or something, um. So that was like the kind of misdirect, um. And I think in terms of the spelling, like originally, like I think people now, I think because of the way that Twitter is gone, and because now I um somehow magically have like a ton of followers, I think a lot of people kind of see my account as the one account on Twitter in that community that does the misspellings. Um, But that wasn't, like, that's just the way it's like, I have I think I've been cemented. But that wasn't true when I started. Like, when I started, everyone was doing the misspellings. Like, that was Mm. kind of the way that, that was one of the ways that everyone was subverting expectation and the ways they were kind of being like, um, they were rejecting the norms. Mm. And so, like, there were so many accounts that I really looked up to that were also messing around with how like with syntax and with structure and with it was kind of like weird poetry in a way um just like weird ee cummings if ee cummings talked about like crabs and like clouds well i guess maybe he does but like (laughs) 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 but like if, if it like if if it was it was kind of like a total stylistic exercise um and i think i just picked up on that and i think I kind of just kept going for longer than those than most of the other people in that community and I think that's where I am now. Um but definitely like the misspellings have a purpose of like it's funny that you said like I'm not even going to try to pronounce the bio the way it's spelled because like I think that's that's like that's so ingrained in the joke of seeing the misspellings online like The whole point is that you can't, you can't like this is something that only works as a medium if you're reading it. It doesn't work as a medium telling it. No, you
0: can't. I think that's what's what's kind of interesting about it is just trying to just looking at it. The the misspellings don't actually make sense, right? Which is kind of what's brilliant about it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, and they like yeah they can't they don't make sense like linguistically like they're not. You're I'm not misspelling them the way like someone would be mispronouncing. A word, yeah in real life right like they're they're very native to like the actual way that most of the things um when I started out, like the system was like I noticed that n was a common letter in most words, and the words b and m are right next to n on the keyboard, and so like I think most of my typos are around the letters nm and b because they were just like located in the same area as common letters um but it was a very it's very i think a lot of the stuff on twitter when you look at how the typos are formed they're very um they're based on like how the keyboard is set up and Mm -hmm. so that's also like a design question um like people i think one of the common things is is accidentally putting um a comma instead of a period because those two are right next to each other yeah. Um, if you go like back, like way back when you start like at the start of memes, it would always be like exclamation, exclamation, exclamation mark one.
0: Yes. Right? Yes, yes, yes.
1: Yeah. And that's like I saw that as like this in the same kind of vein of all that stuff because it's it's based on
0: the keyboard. It's yeah. all
1: typographical.
0: Um did did you actively grow the Twitter account or did it just happen?
1: It just happened. Like it was um <laughs> Yeah, it just, I was just blown away because I think, I mean, I used it um, very much as like a way to keep writing. And even when, even though it's like a tweet a day doesn't sound like a lot, um, I think when I started when I was in architecture school, and that actually was a lot to even just like dedicate 15 minutes to thinking of a joke. Um, But I've like, I've always told myself, and I think I've, I think I've stuck to this, for the most part but i've always said like i'm gonna i'm gonna tweet once a day i'm gonna write one joke a day and sit down and think about it and and put it out every day and i think that kind of consistency and that um i guess like discipline it's fun it's funny to talk about discipline when you talk about tweeting Um, but but that type of discipline um becomes like i think you need that because i think when you when i follow someone i want to like I follow them cuz I want to see what they're what they're saying every day. Like that's part of the contract that yeah, that you yeah. make, right? Um and when if you're tweeting sporadically, if you're tweeting like a bunch for one day and then not saying anything for the next week, I think it does that doesn't really help natural growth, right? But I think if you're no, tweeting no. every day and people are like, "Oh, this is someone that I can kind of come to and see new stuff every day then i think that helps things grow naturally
0: do you ever look at that that follower count and just wonder how it got to that point oh every like i look at my personal account i am over a thousand and i'm like yeah i'm over a thousand because i made (laughs) you know i was like i'm this is what i want to do is i want to get my twitter account so it's not like me and like five friends but i i really wanted to grow it so i put effort into it uh-huh. But I look at that that number, and sometimes I'm like, yeah, and it still goes up sometimes. And and here I look at yours, and it's 181,000. Uh-huh. Um, do you look at that? Does that freak you out? Does it freak you out to that, that the things that you that you put out there are going to that many people?
1: Yes, yeah. Every, <laughs> almost every day I look at that number, and I, I I'm just like, what happened? Like, how did that happen? <laughs> um, and it, it astounds me, and it's it's a big, it's such a big number that like. I think I think there was, like, a study somewhere that said after, like, 50,000 or something, human brains can't actually understand how much a number means. Yes, um yeah. Like, I don't – I can't – I don't have any intuitive understanding of how much 180,000 – how many 180,000 people are. No. Like you can't – you can't picture that many people. Um no. So, it, it becomes – it's kind of funny because I, I think at this point um, – Like, when you have zero followers and you tweet, you're kind of like, I'm just tweeting into an empty void. And Mm -hmm. it's, I think, once you get to a certain number, it kind of feels almost the same in a very strange way, where, like, Mm -hmm. this is such a large mass of people that I can't actually process it. So my brain refuses to process it. So I'm just going to keep putting stuff out there the way that I always do. Um, It definitely, though, has made me aware of... um, the power of of anything you say when you have an audience and I think that's something that I think everyone with an audience has some responsibility because um, you don't know who's following you. you don't know like how many people are um, will kind of take your stuff and internalize that and mm-hmm. and so so I do think there is um, a role and a responsibility that I have to f- abide by and that I think everyone, on Twitter who has that following should, should kind of, should kind of um, be aware of. And so I try, I try to be very, um, very good about that. And I think I look up to, to people who do that and who are aware of that and who are very conscious of, of just, of just being positive and, and spreading a good, a good message.
0: Do you, do you get, uh, when you, when you tweet, do, are the responses that come back largely, uh, uh, positive or do you because I know for me if I get that one negative tweet that's the one that I pay attention to oh yeah do you find do you find that, that yours are weighted positive or negative or is it down the middle or do you not even look anymore
1: um, I still try to look I still try to look because I think like part of I think like like on a, in an academic sense I guess part of like the magic of social media is that is that two way engagement like it's an immediacy between the like, creator and audience um and so i think it's important to kind of keep up with with how people are interacting with the stuff you put out so i try to read everything um but i think you're absolutely right like it it definitely skews positive for me um and i'm very grateful for that but if even if there's like one negative comment in like 50 positive comments that's the one that will like upset me like if i wake up and i see that it'll ruin my day
0: (laughs) (laughs) but I, that's well, that, human nature right? <laughs> that is human nature and it's it's ridiculous it's kind of ridiculous that that's where our brains go mm-hmm. that all of the positive re- uh responses that we get uh the negative ones are the ones that we see i have had you know i've had positive reviews and i've had negative reviews of things that i've done uh-huh. and i could not remember a line of a positive review, uh-huh. but I can remember the negative reviews in so much vivid detail.
1: Oh gosh. Yeah. That
0: those are the things that, 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 that I, like I can recall those other times I could say, Oh, I remember I got a good review from that, that newspaper, uh-huh. but the bad ones I could almost recite like poetry. Oh, gosh, yeah. And you, and you, you <laughs> knew
1: who wrote it. You knew like which platform put it out. Like you yep. knew everything up. You knew like the
0: date and the time. I knew the date and time. I remember the reviewer's name. It's like, yeah. I can like pick it out, you know? um in terms of in terms of uh uh, dead end just to to bring it back to that um how did you connect with uh, theater lab
1: um theater lab so this is like this is kind of a great i'm very grateful for the way things turned out because um theater lab put out a call because they did a festival of readings called the first sight festival in november of 2015 um and i think they just put out a general call for for plays that have not yet been produced um to do this reading festival and i was in boston at the time and one of my good friends kevin vidal who's who used to be a second city main stager and i think he's he's all like he's kind of all around the um comedy community now is uh my really close friend and i grew up with him and we went to the same high school and we've um always been really close and he saw this listing and he said you should you should submit this play let's submit this together i'll like i'll read for one part and we'll do the play and that's what we did and they the theater lab accepted it for the festival and then i think they just liked it so much or they found some sort of connection to it that they contacted me after and said hey let's let's stage this let's like do a real production of this so it was very um a lot of things kind of happened in in the right way for this to have happened mm. yeah so they're i mean they're they're phenomenal they're such a great um group of people and very professional and very just very smart and sharp and
0: brilliant well you can have a, an excellent an excellent cast just looking at the the cast list. I mean, Chris, Chris from Peter and Chris for one thing. Oh yeah. That, that cat caught my attention right away. Cause I, you know, I love the work that Peter and Chris do and, and yeah. uh, the stuff that Christian Smith and, and Caridwin have done, uh, it just really sort of jumps out. It just looks like it's going to be a, a really great show. Um, and it's good to hear you f- feeling really positive about it and that your experience with them was, was, was really good previously. Mm. Um, is, in terms of how this is, this is happening. I mean, you are not in Toronto as this is being worked on, but I understand you are, you're coming, I guess for, for, for opening. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, is it strange to be so far away from the production at this point, or is it almost a relief to not have to be in the room and just to sort of show up and see what they've done with it?
1: Yeah. I think that was kind of like, I've done productions where I've written and directed and been in, um, the the show and so i like I, I feel like i've had that experience and but i've never had the experience of kind of giving giving something i've done to a group of artists and just just letting them take it and run with it and so like that was very important to me that i wanted to like i wanted to have that experience and i also didn't want to kind of intrude and in, like sometimes it's it's kind of like oh the playwright's coming now and he's going to tell us like tell everyone that they've ruined everything. Um, And I like, I didn't want to intrude on like their creative, uh, their creative process. Um, So it's been, it's been really great. And, and Michael, the director, Michael Orlando has, um, he's kept me in the loop enough to like, so that I'm kind of aware of what's going on. Mm. Um, But the other thing is like, I went to the first table read of the play when we got like everyone together and I think I was still at like, I was listening to the read and I loved it and everyone was great. But like personally in my head, I was like, there's no way I could direct this. Like, this is too, <laughs> this is too close to me. And this is too, um, it's almost like too personal to me mm. where like, I would not be able to let anything go. And all I saw were like the wrong words I chose in the script and I would be endlessly tinkering. Um, mm. So I think, I think that kind of separation was healthy on my on my end
0: yeah it's hard to be the it's hard to be a playwright and director it's hard to mm-hmm. i mean it's i've been a playwright and performer and that's hard mm-hmm. but to be a playwright and director because there's such different hats and you really yeah. have to be able to stop doing one and do concentrate on the other mm-hmm. yeah um, It's also i mean it's hard to be the playwright in a room when people are rehearsing your play because that urge to tinker has got to be pretty overwhelming even if you're not the director if you're sitting in the room you keep wondering how could you improve what's being said
1: yeah absolutely and like i think one of the blessings like when you talk you'd mentioned the cast um like christian and chris are both improvisers um and comedians um i think first and foremost i'd say uh and i think that's that's kind of excellent because i think i think i think there's like such a i think there's a divide in like toronto theater where like the improvisers aren't seen as actors and actors aren't seen as improvisers and there's like such a split there um and i've talked to a lot of my improv friends about it and i think it's like they think it's very unfair that they're not being considered for for like truly like for like theatrical productions um and they're just not seen as like real actors quote unquote um so i thought i thought it was great that that um, our, our cast is made of improvisers. And- yeah,
0: absolutely. And I think that that, I mean, it, it, I agree that it is not fair that, you know, improvisers are not considered uh, quote unquote real actors. Cause there's so much talent uh, in, mm-hmm. in, in the people who are improvising and you, and so much uh, creativity, but I mean, every, every scene has its own, uh, cliques and foibles and it's hard to break from one to the other there's mm-hmm. always resentments between them but man I've, I've seen some 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 really talented people in the the comedy and improv improv world like the guys from sex t-rex mm-hmm. and uh, Peter and Chris and, and and all those people so yeah. it's really great that, that that this show is coming together like that and and uh, that the the show which is a comedy but it sounds like it, it deals with not just with, with some serious issues as well as the, the comedic ones.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, it does. It um, I think it's, I think the premise starts, and like, this is my favorite type of like comedy is when the premise starts um, kind of fun and then it just like unfolds and unpacks and it becomes um, not comedy, basically.
0: <laughs> no, I love that. I love when you can like draw people in with a com- comedic pre- premise and then surprise them yeah. with uh something serious that they they weren't quite expecting when they walked in. Yeah. To be able to give them that that uh that shock, that twist when it, you th- oh you thought this was going to be a light comedy and now they get into something serious, which is awesome.
1: Yeah, and I think like comedy has such a tool. Like it's as a tool it has such a power to I think bring people in and to engage. And I think like I think that's kind of what we're seeing in a lot of like comedy just in in general today where there's a lot more blurring between the lines of like what is strictly comedy and what's strictly drama or what is comedy and what's like a human story. Um, And I think the, the my favorite comedians working today are the ones who are using comedy as a way in as an entry point to get, to be able to talk about the more human stuff.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, I think I'm at the at the point where I'm gonna have to, to let you go, uh just so that you can make your class. So I wanna thank you for talking with me today. This has been a lot of fun.